My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Pastor Taylor. Um, I've been here for a little while. I'm the associate pastor here at Sunrise, and I got the privilege of leading us through the series of Believe back in spring, and now I'm just going to do a one-off message this morning um, about weakness. I really want to talk about it. I believe it's something God's been speaking and showing to me more and more, um, and sometimes we hear about weakness, and we hear about it, and it's, it sounds really, um, we can romanticize weakness, uh, we can we can make it sound really really sexy. I'll say, and uh, the problem is is we don't always do a great job talking about it though within the church wall. So I want to read the passage of all passages to you this morning about weakness, and it's from the Apostle Paul. And he's having these great revelations, and he's telling the church of Corinth that he can boast about these revelations that he's having. But he goes on to say this: So to God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh also known as a weakness, we could say, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. It's a little bit of my translation. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's so countercultural today. That's so countercultural today. You won't find that anywhere. You only find that in the Bible and you'll find us Christians talking about it but not really applying it. And so this morning, I just want to pray. I just want to pray to start us off before we get going because the truth is I believe you can experience a moment of transformation not because of any words that I preach or not because of um, any other person in your life but because God is so in love with you that he wants you to really experience life and I believe you can experience life when you come face to face and embrace your weakness. So let's pray. Father, uh, man, we need you this morning. We need you, we love you, we, we want you. And so I just say, God, would you uh, just meet us in our vulnerabilities, our insecurities, our inadequacies, um, all the things that we want to cover up and hide and uh, not speak about and maybe 
cause us some shame whenever we do have to talk about them, God. I pray that you would reveal those to us in such a powerful way that shows us that when we're weak, we're strong because of you. That's the moment that you take over. That's the moment that you show your strength and we get to see it in its fullest form is when we're weak. And so reveal that to us this morning, God. Show us that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this is one of the conversations I love talking about. The reason I love talking about weakness um, is because it's something that I struggle with. It's something that I wrestle with. Um, because I don't know what to do with my weaknesses sometimes. I loved when I spent three years as a youth pastor here at Sunrise Church, and one of my favorite topics to talk about with my high school boys was weakness. You know why? Because we all know that they are getting thrown into this cultural fog of you are what you do, you are who you become, you are how you look. Like your whole identity is, faced through, is, is based around your, what the world says is your worth which is how strong are you? How good looking are you? How well do you talk? Do you have skills and giftings that, that, that look good in high school, that look good as a young adult? And I talk about these with high school men, but I also talked about them with high school students because girls are not exempt from it at all either. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about because everyone can relate to it. Everyone can relate to their insecurities. Everyone can relate to their weaknesses. Everyone can relate to that. But what do we do about them? What do you really do about your weaknesses? What do you really do about these things that, honestly, we get really good at hiding? We have really good ways at hiding them. So one of the things that I, uh, I want to ask this morning is, what do you do when these areas of your life are exposed to culture? What do you do when you can't hide them anymore? What do you do with your unhealed trauma from this last year of COVID or from your childhood? <laughs> what do you do with these insecurities? What do you do when people are looking to you for answers? Maybe even your kids. And the truth is, if you're honest, you don't really have them. What do you do in these moments? What do you do when you feel the inadequacy coming over you? What do you really do? What do you, where do you run to? Where do you go? How do you really handle it? We don't talk about it enough. And so I want to take you on a journey through what the Apostle Paul experienced in his own transformation of weakness. And so I'm using this book here called Power and Weakness um, by Timothy Gombas. And I believe this is such a powerful book speaking in to what Paul experienced when it came to viewing his own weakness in the journey of following Jesus. And so if you don't know the Apostle Paul already this morning, the Apostle Paul is like superhero. He is like the one we're all like, man, the Apostle Paul. And we want to be like him. He's got it together. He's the super apostle, super leader, leading churches, writing letters, close to Christ, intimacy with him. And we look at him and we go, he's like, he's the guy. If there's someone I could pick, if there's someone I could choose to be like, it's the apostle Paul. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of his letters to his churches that he helped start and plant and his disciples 
that he encouraged and loved. And what he did in these letters is he taught them, he encouraged them, he exhorted them. He did all kinds of things in these letters. And we're going to look at these letters and we're going to see a different Paul from the Paul that we see before his experience on the road to Damascus. And you may not understand what that means necessarily, but Paul had a moment on the road to Damascus that changed everything. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, because Paul wasn't a guy that all of a sudden just embraced weakness or or loved talking about weakness or his vulnerabilities or his insecurities. That's not who Paul was, who who I already read about this morning. That's not. He started off different. He, this is how he started off. Let me, let me read this to you this morning. In Acts 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul, also known as Paul, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Paul's trying to eradicate followers of the way, Christians, because he views them as sinners. We'll get to that in just a moment. But that's what he's trying to do. And to understand Paul's motives, we have to understand that he's a Pharisee. He's zealous for the law. The 613 commandments that we would find in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would adhere to, that they would follow as as followers of of God, as, as people of Yahweh. And so Paul is super zealous that people would follow this because... The reason that he wanted them to follow this is because by following the laws, they would experience resurrection. And so I want to I unpack resurrection. I'm doing a little bit of teaching here for you this morning. I want you to understand the term resurrection the way that a Pharisee would have thought of resurrection. So I got this quote from the book. It says, Resurrection to the Pharisees indicated this larger national scenario of economic, political, and religious restoration of God's promises to the patriarchs and to Israel through the prophets. See, resurrection referred to the reality of God pouring out his life-giving presence upon the land and the holistic renewal of Israel's national life, the restoration of flourishing at every level of society. So this is like, we think of resurrection as, okay, this is what's going to come at the end. Like, we're excited for the resurrection one day when we will all be called home to Christ. Like, that's, that's kind of the gene- general view that we have of it. But as a follower, as a, as, a, as a Jewish Pharisee, they saw it as so much more. See, these people had lived through exile. They had lived through these treacherous times. And the reason that they believed that they experienced all these times is because they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow Yahweh. They didn't obey his commands. And so therefore they experienced exile. And now as Paul writes his letters and as we enter the current time when the Bible, when these stories are going on, they're under Roman oppression. They're not experiencing the shalom of God. They're not experiencing what they believe to be this, this restoration and flourishing at every level of society. They're not experiencing that. And the reason they're not experiencing that is what Paul believes and the Pharisees believe is because people are still not following the law. We still have sinners in society. And as long as they're sinners, there can't be a resurrection. And I do all this to help, you, to help paint this picture of the Apostle Paul for you, to help you understand that Paul's not, Paul, Saul, is not this bad guy before this moment on the road to Damascus. He's faithful to the Torah. He's, he, he's faithful to following the law and trying to get others to follow the law. Because the truth is, is he wants the people to experience the resurrection, the full restoration of God, where everyone is flourishing at every level. 
Now, the way he's going about it is coercive. It's manipulative. His, his methods are wrong, but his motives, well, you could say that Paul's actually maybe a good guy before his moment on the road where he experiences a transformation. And so that's kind of the approach that Gombus takes at Paul's life as he says, this, this moment on the road, which we're going to go over in just a second, is not just a salvation experience for Paul, it's a transformative experience for Paul. It's a moment where Paul not only comes to saving, to saving faith in Jesus, but it's a moment where Paul looks at the way that he is living his life and realizes that his leadership at every level needs a transformation. The way that he is going about and reaching people needs a transformation. And so that's the approach we're going to take to this. But let's go look at the moment on that road. Let's go look at the moment in which this happens, because I think it's actually really good for helping us understand how God works. So let's, let's go read further into Acts 9 here. It says, As he was approaching Damascus, Paul, a mission, a light from heaven, suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So that's just where he's at. All of a sudden, God sends Ananias, this man, to pray over Paul and heal him. And that's what we read about next here. It says, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Here's this guy, he is going after these Christians and he's saying, man, we're going to put them in jail, we're going to write them up, and then we get to the end of the chapter and all of a sudden he's like, wait, Jesus is the son of God. It all happens in a chapter for us. And if you want to be really, really like just, I just want to point blank with what's going on here. Paul, Saul, he didn't do anything to make this happen. He had a moment on the road Jesus met him where he was at and said, why are you persecuting me? And from there, everything changed. Everything. And there's something like scales fell through his eyes. We call it spiritual blindness in the church. We call call this Paul's salvation moment where all of a sudden he turns from darkness to light. And I agree with all that stuff, but I want to take it from more of an application standpoint to go, what is really the transformation that Paul, Saul, experienced on the road that day? What did he really experience? What really changed in him in just a moment of encountering Jesus? Because I believe that is what we all crave, even as followers of Jesus. And that's why I think it's so important to look at the story of Paul, not from just a salvation moment, because many of us listening and watching have put our trust in Jesus. And so how do we look at this moment and go, I I need that experience in my life. I need a moment of change in my life. COVID has taken me under, my situations in my life, my relationships, everything has just fallen apart. I need transformation in my life. And so I want to take this further than just 
a salvation experience to a theological transformation that Paul goes under in this moment and how he specifically views his weakness, his vulnerabilities, his insecurities. Because I think that when we see that and we apply those in our lives, that'll actually change the way that we go about being the church, that we go about being disciples of Christ, that we go about leading others to following Jesus. Because we got a lot of people out there I was reading the statistics this week. In Portland, we're like number 54 in post-Christian cities. At 42% people claiming to be post-Christian, meaning that they don't believe in Jesus. That means two out of five people that you run into on a daily basis don't know Jesus. They don't know. They don't care. They want nothing to do. Maybe they've been hurt. All kinds of things. And what are we going to do about that? How are we going to represent Christ? How are we going to show them the posture of Christ? Because I want to argue that I think we've gotten it wrong for a while. Not just, not just sunrise. I'm not just pointing it out to you. I'm not saying, but that's the church. As the church, I think there's areas we can grow and experience transformation because Paul experienced it. So what I believe are the three areas... <laughs> Three areas of transformation is what I want to go over today. And the first area that I believe Paul experienced transformation is he, he identified as an outsider. And so now I want to go into Paul's letters. I want, to, I want to point this out to you. If we go to Paul's letter in Timothy, one of his personal disciples, we're going to see Paul say this to his, his disciple. Timothy. He says, his is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them all. So Paul, let's, let's remember this. He viewed people, followers of Jesus, as sinners. And now all of a sudden, he's identifying as a sinner. He's identifying as an outsider. He used the term sinner to help himself feel like an insider, to make it an exclusive club. That's how Paul used the word. And now, in our very first transformational view, we see a Paul. He's saying, hey, I'm going to identify as an outsider. And here's what I mean by that. Paul viewed Jesus as an outsider, as a sinner. And I want to take you to an Old Testament text that shows why Paul got to this point of viewing Jesus as a sinner and didn't believe in the stories that people were telling of Jesus' resurrection. So we got to go all the way back to Deuteronomy to find this. And so in here, it says, If someone has committed a crime worthy of death, he is executed and hung on a tree. The body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day, for anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. So here's how Paul got here. He's looking back to the Old Testament text. He's going, Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. And because Jesus Christ was hung on a tree, he's cursed in the sight of God. This guy is not the Messiah. That's what he's trying to tell everybody. He is not the Savior of the world. And now you've got this movement of people following him, claiming he is the Messiah. He's going, wait a second. got to cancel this out. i got to get rid of this. Further helping us understand that Paul is not a bad guy before this moment on the road. His tactics were, sure, they were, they're questionable. But he views Jesus as a sinner because of this right here. Therefore, followers of Jesus are sinners. So therefore, he's looking at this going, you guys are the outsiders. I'm the insider. I've been getting this all right. I've been doing all this right. We need to get rid of you so we can experience resurrection. And now go back to that First Timothy text for me for a moment. But then Paul experiences this moment of transformation somewhere in the journey, and he goes, whoa, wait, wait, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one of them all. He goes from, you're the sinner, 
to I'm the greatest sinner. You're the outsider to I'm really on the outs. There's a moment of transformation there. There's a moment where everything has changed for him. Like, what, what's going on? What did Paul realize that all of a sudden he's not an insider, but he's an outsider? What happened to him? First, first and foremost, when we look at the scriptures and we understand how it played out, he looks at Jesus' death, who the Pharisees claimed was not the Son of God, claimed he was a sinner. He looks at Jesus and goes, Jesus died on a cross. He was cursed. And then all of a sudden, God exalted him. So by identifying as a sinner, by identifying who Jesus was, Paul shares in Jesus' humiliation, therefore hoping that he would experience in the same exaltation as Jesus. That's first what's going on. And then the second one, which we, we, all, we, all, we all know this part of it, he realized that a sinner was the requirement to be saved by God. He realized that being a sinner, was one, recognizing yourself as an outsider, was the first thing you needed to be saved by God. And so I want to go to this Romans text for you. He goes, when we were utterly helpless, he's writing to the church in Rome. He's saying Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. As a sinner, we stand before God understanding that we need his grace. And that this recognition of our sin is the first requirement to be saved by God. And I, I, I wonder, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, if we have forgotten this at some time, at, somewhere along the journey. But that we, we were saved by grace, but now it's up to us to follow Jesus, to point out to, point out to others that aren't following Jesus, where culture's got it wrong, where culture is all messed up. Have we forgotten that we were the sinner? That we still are the sinner? That, that, that's not where we find our identity, but that we are the outsider. Have we forgotten that somewhere around the way? Or do we think, maybe we have this thought that we just give lip service to this idea. Like, I, I, I've been around church long enough to know, and I think a lot of us have really good false humility. And we go, yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't get it all right. I, I haven't figured this out yet, but... I know I don't, I got some work to do, but them, <laughs> man, have you seen them? We've gotten really good at pointing the finger out versus in. And in a time where I think the church has the greatest opportunity to be the brightest light in the world, I think Paul is trying to remind us that we were the sinners saved by grace first. That remembering that we were the outsider that God drew near to is one of the greatest points of weakness that is going to minister to the world. And so Paul's looking at that and going, I think he's challenging us. Like, don't give lip service to the fact that you're a sinner. Don't give lip service to the fact that you're an outsider and you're not perfect. Don't give lip service to that, but really come to this understanding, this transformative view that you are on the outside. You were on the outside, but because you recognized it, because of your need for help, because you were so far off and you realized that you couldn't do this by yourself, that's why God has pulled you close. That's why God has saved you. Not because of your abilities, 
but because of your inabilities and your recognition of it. And I think if we remember, if we return to the heart of that, that is going to help us approach the people in our lives, approach our family members, approach our kids, approach our relatives, approach our coworkers, our colleagues, our employees, people who are far from God, two and five, two out of five. To help them understand why Christ is so beautiful. Why Christ would change everything in your life. How do we remember? I think this is a really good one. How do we remember that we're right where they are? We are that same outsider. We are still struggling with areas of our lives, sin, brokenness, all these things. How do we remember that we were right where they were at once? And actually, even today, we're probably no different. The difference is is that Christ has saved us because we know that we need it. The second area that I believe Paul experienced transformation on the road to Damascus is the area of image management. Now, many of us, we look at image management, and maybe you get the general term, but a really good way to describe it today would be like, what's your brand? Now, what's your brand you give off? It's a very, very um, online term, you could say. People got our influencers on Instagram and Facebook, and you got your own business or your side hustle. I mean, everyone's got a brand. Some, some kind of, uh, when, you, when you say the name of who you are, everyone's got a perception of who you are, and that's your brand. And so we're all trying to give off this really good, powerful, cleaned up image of who we are. And when, so when we think about image management, we're trying to help people see what we want them to see in us. And so as we look at Paul, we're going to look at his letters to the church of Corinth. And we're going to understand where he's coming from and how he experienced transformation in this way. Because the Corinthians, they're being seduced and enamored by rival teachers that are impressive and they're credentialed. And when we run up against moments where we find people that are better than us, smarter than us, better looking than us, all these moments, I think that's the moment when we want to like kind of puff up our chest and either justify why we're just as good, if not better. And that's, that's, that's what we all want to do. That's, that's where we all want to go with this. And Paul's like, let me, let me give you a three-point <laughs> three message about your image management. So we're going to look at Paul's image management strategy from three points. And the first one you can look at is don't boast beyond your area of impact. Don't boast beyond it. When Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he goes, he says this in scripture. He says, we will not boast about things done outside our area of authority. And then he adds to this two verses later. He says, nor do we boast and claim credit for the work someone else has done. And so we see this, like Paul's trying not to exaggerate the impact of his ministry or the effectiveness of it. He wants to make it very clean, very clear, very integrous of what his work is. I think some of us are like, we like to exaggerate how good we're doing. We like to kind of go, yeah. We like to fudge the numbers or tell the story, a good fishing story about why we're doing so good in areas of our lives. Whether it be following Jesus, whether it be at work on a, on a report, how, how good we did when we go home. The story we tell is usually different than the story our coworkers are telling. And Paul's saying, I, don't, don't boast beyond your area of impact. Just keep it clean. Keep it truthful. 
The second image management strategy, Paul says, if you are going to boast, boast about your weakness. Boast about your weakness. This is where we get this. It's from the text I said earlier. Um, if, I, if I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. I love that. Like, are you sure, Paul? I think you should get a different PR manager. Right? Like, I don't think you should be boasting about your weaknesses. If you want people to follow you and you want people to believe your message, Paul, don't boast about your weaknesses. Don't boast about your insecurities. Don't boast about your inadequacies because people are going to look at you as weak. And he goes, that's the point. And that leads us to number three, which is don't try to appear better than you are. Don't try to appear better than you are, which maybe is a little repetitive of point one, but I want to read you the text at which we get this from. It says, if I wanted to boast, I'd be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Paul understands something that we already read earlier, that the weaker we become, the less that we are a part of the message and, and, and that we look good, the more that Christ gets the credit, the more that Christ's power comes alive is in our weakness, in our frailties, in our inadequacies. And so Paul's like, don't try to appear better. That doesn't advance the gospel message. That doesn't advance anything. That, ad- that advances you. And so Paul goes, I-, I don't want you to think I'm any better than what I communicate in my message. Remember, he's encouraging these churches from a letter. That's all he's got. And I think it'd be very tempting to go, yeah, this is, this is how good I am. This is what you should know about me. This is what you should understand about me and why you should listen to me. And Paul goes, no, no, no. I don't want you to think I'm better than I am. I don't want you to think that. Because the only thing I want you to see at the end of the day is Jesus Christ. Because I have no control over the fact that he met me on that road. I was going to destroy Christians. I was going to eradicate the church. That's where I was going. And Jesus met me there. It has nothing to do with my abilities. And so when I'm with you and when I'm writing to you, I don't want you to be impressed by my speech or by my presentation or by the care or what I give as my brand to you. I want you to understand that it has everything to do with Jesus. And I think we could all take notes from that. How do we boast about our weaknesses? How do we come to a place where that's like, that's the thing we talk about? And so I just want to talk about this for a moment for a few of us in the room, wherever we find ourselves in life and our relationships. And for the parents in the room, man, I think it's really important that when we look at discipling our kids and talking to our kids, whether they be grown adults or whether they be just the little one-year-old that I have at home, When we talk to them, how do we not always focus on the successes, the glory days, the good moments, the the things we got right? How do we focus on the things we messed up on, the things we fell short on, the things we don't like to talk about? Because oftentimes we want to we want to be Superman to the to our kids. Like that's what we want. We want them to look up to us. And can I tell you something? Whether you share your biggest biggest mess up in life or whether it's about the only the successes your kid is always going to look to you as superman or superwoman they're always going to look to you because you're their mom you're their dad they don't need to see superman they want to see someone that they can attain to be and you're not jesus and you don't need to be perfect 
You don't need to have it all together. They want to know where you have fallen short. They want to know you, the complete you, not the you that you just try to give off as your image management strategy. Some of you have relationships that are broken with your kids, and I would say one of the greatest places to start is to share in your weakness, to share where maybe you messed up, where you've gotten it wrong, and let God do the rest of the work because that's, that's the nature of it today, that God works. God does his best work whether we agree to it or not. Maybe you're... Uh, Maybe, you know, I noticed that friendships is a really tough one today, the relationships we have in our life. I I noticed that a lot of people actually lack real friendship, real relationship. And what I mean by that is we lack people that really know us. We lack people that truly know the complete us. Do you have that group of friends in your life where you can share any detail with, any weakness with, any failure with, any slip up with, or all the friends you got in your life are the ones you're trying to give off your best self to. Because those aren't real friendships. Those aren't real relationships. You're not really known there. And I believe that God desires you to be known, not manage your image in front of who you call friends. Your friends need to be people you can go to with, with anything and everything, and they will embrace you in love. And when they're really good friends, that love will turn into accountability. That love will turn into holding you accountable and coming to you and saying, hey, I, I, I love you, but I'm going to show you some grace. I'm going to show you lots of grace, but then I want to speak some truth because I think you need to hear it. That's what a real friend, they have permission to do that because they know you and you know them. There's no ulterior motives. There's no putting the other person down. It's we're in this together, growing in life together not trying to create the right image, but trying to truly be known by you and, and, and be known by God. And then uh, I think the last one for those of you that are leading employees or coworkers or just even family members in general and all relationships of life, how do you share your vulnerability? How do you share your inadequacies? How do, how do you do that with discretion, obviously? But how do you do that in these relationships that you share the appropriate amount of weakness without it becoming weird or, or <laughs> awkward, but still coming across as authentic and real? Because there's people in your life that need to know you that you lead. Because when people know you, I believe they follow you. Because what Paul said many times to the people and the churches he lead, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. That was his greatest discipleship right there. Follow me as I follow Christ. And part of following Christ was sharing in his weakness. And so for those of you leading and loving on people, whether that be coworkers or family members or any of that, how do you lead with your weakness? How do you lead with your shortcomings? How do you lead with those areas? And the last thing I want to talk about, the third area that Paul experienced transformation is the area of credential accumulation. Now, uh, many of us want to be valued and known, and I've already talked about this. And, uh, and so therefore we, we accumulate credentials, accolades, whatever you want to say, anything that deems us valuable by the world to help us find our identity and worth. 
And Paul was no different than us. Paul speaks right into this. He's talking to the church of Philippi, and he shares these very, very powerful words with the church and starts going off this list of accolades and achievements that he has from a lifetime of following Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I was a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there was ever one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So if we were really look at this, we, we kind of go, so what? Like that's, that's kind of our initial, um, initial thought on this, that we just go, so what? But to help you understand something, being circumcised on the eighth day meant he was a pure Jew. This whole list is about his purity of, of adherence to the Jewish heritage and traditions. That's what we're looking at, which was a very big deal, which made him the superstar of superstars, the Pharisee, well-respected. Everything that he was that we, that we kind of find in him and look up to, this is the list and the reasons why. The fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day meant he's a, he's a pure Jew. He didn't convert in at some later point in life. He was a citizen of Israel, which is God's chosen nation. He's, he's a descendant of the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He uh, claims to be a tribe of, of, from the tribe of Benjamin. And so by that, it's one of the more prominent tribes. But not only that, many people he's speaking to wouldn't even know which, where their heritage went back to. And so for him to know and for it to be a prominent tribe, he's, he's bringing even more um, accolades to himself. He's saying he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he probably held really fast to his Jewish heritage, whether it be the language or the traditions or the customs of his ancestors. And then he starts going off, which we've already talked about, about being a Pharisee, and he's zealous for the law. He persecuted those who he thought to be in sin, and that he followed the law perfectly. He's like, hey, if there's anyone that can boast if there's anyone who's got this all figured out and dialed in he's saying this is me this is my list of accolades here this is everything that i am this is a lifetime of work he's telling the church of philippi he's like this is it if there's if anyone's achieved it it's me but then he follows it up with this really really just profound statement he says this in the very next verse two verses in seven through eight I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. He goes through this list of accolades. He says, it's, it means nothing. It means nothing to having Christ compared to having Christ. And I think this is an area that really speaks to a lot of us because many of us, we struggle with this. We struggle with the fact that if I can just be so honest, Jesus is enough. Like that is one of the hardest truths we struggle with. Jesus is enough. We look at these accolades. We look at these credentials. We we want letters in front of our name, behind our name, thinking that'll that'll appease or that'll make us known. And it's because we live in a, a very strong celebrity culture where we equate that a celebrity being popular and known by a lot of people means that that celebrity's known. And the truth is the celebrity could never be more lonely. To truly be known means to surrender your life to Christ. To truly be known. 
That's what that means, that you would know God and that you would be known by God. But we struggle with that because many of us are trying to achieve. Many of us are trying to become. Many of us are whatever you want to say. Because the world's told us that when we do, then we'll be enough. And Paul very clearly says here, he says, no, 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 I've, I've done it all, guys. Let me tell you something. All of that's garbage. It's all garbage. Nothing is better than knowing Christ and being known by Christ. Nothing. And until we can come to that truth and believe that in the depths of our soul, I think we'll always be lacking. I think we'll always be striving. I think we'll always be pursuing the next thing. That having Christ is enough. And I say this to you on this stage, go, man, it's a tough one. It's, I, I wrestle with that, right? That Christ is enough. To come to that truth and to plant yourself in it and to live your life with your identity in Christ is one of the biggest challenges you'll face. And that's why we preach it at the high school level all the way until you are no longer alive on this world. Because it starts then and it never ends. The bombard, the cultural fog of you need to do this, you need to be this until you're truly, truly going to be fulfilled. And Paul goes, no, you want to be fulfilled? Surrender your life. Trust Jesus. Experience the transformation that he wants in your life. And so I just want to close with uh, just kind of two thoughts for you real quick about what this means. Because sometimes we start talking about weakness and we go, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put my tail between my legs and I'm just going to be a doormat for everybody in my life. That's not what Paul's saying. Saying, don't be, a, don't be a doormat. You're not called to be a doormat by being weak. And the second thing I think is important to say is, share with discretion. You don't need to come into just any environment and start just laying off all your weaknesses and all the things that you struggle with, from gossip to pornography to whatever. You don't need to just go into any environment and do that. Start with one person. Start there and see where God leads. See what he does. I believe that God's heart for you today, the biggest thing you could do is if we just look at these three areas of transformation that Paul just wants you to experience any of these three areas in your life. Maybe you've gotten really good at making other people the outsider and forgetting that you actually were the outsider to start with as well. That you're right where they are. That you are, you're called to identify with them. Maybe for you it's the image management piece. Like you've been just giving off this this air, this brand to your kids, to the people in your life. And the truth is, is they're just looking for someone real, authentic, true to themselves, wrestling for, with forgiving. Whatever it is, that's what they want. That's what they want to know. I'm not saying everyone gets that access, but some people need it. Maybe it's credential accumulation for you. You're just, you're pursuing, you got that side hustle going. You got, you got all kinds of things going in your life and you're just on this hamster wheel hoping that it's gonna get somewhere and you've been doing it for a long time only to realize that you're not getting anywhere and that Christ wants to remind you today that he's enough and how you get there and 
how you plant your roots in that truth, man, that's going to take a Holy Spirit moment. That's going to take a road on the middle of the road to Damascus moment. But if God can do it for Paul, then I believe he can do it for you. I believe he can meet you right where you're at. And so I want to invite the worship team up here, and I just want to close with this statement. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm, I'm going to close with some scripture here for you. It's not on the screen or anything like that. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to worship and we're going to bring our weaknesses before God. So this is what Paul writes to the church of, in Philippi. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who in the very nature, in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think the question we have to ask today is how can I lay down, how can we lay down our strengths and rights for the sake of reaching others for Christ. The greatest tool you possess to lead and reach and influence others for Christ, I personally believe, and as we find in Paul, is your weakness. So let's just pray about that. Father, man, just just show us what to do with our weakness. Show us how to come to you with it. Show us how to bring this before you. And to allow you to transform us, transform those around us, God. How do we share our weakness with others appropriately? And not in a way that we're a doormat, God, but just in a way that brings glory to your kingdom, that allows others in to experience the life that Christ has. How do we walk into moments where we feel like we have to have answers and and we don't have them, Lord, and we can just be honest about that? How do we walk into moments, Lord, where we can, just, we can just be our complete selves and be known by those around us? I, I just pray that for us, God. For those of us that have broken relationships out there right now, for those of us that are wrestling um, with kids or, or maybe it's adults or coworkers or anything, God, I, I just pray you would help us lead with weakness, lead with vulnerability, lead with inadequacy, Lord, in a way that honors you and trusts you in the way that you made us, understanding that when we come to terms and embrace our weakness, it's actually your strength, your resurrection power that is manifested in that moment. That the real work of the Holy Spirit can take shape and form when we get out of the way and embrace our inadequacies. Guys, I pray that that would be the truth we walk away with today. And that you would do that for some of those out for those of us out there that are wrestling in our relationships. That you would do the work that only you can do, God. We love you. We trust you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.